0: The National Archives podcast series, Prisoners of War in the Far East, presented by Hilary Custance Green. This talk was recorded on the 28th of July 2016 at the National Archives, Kew. Good afternoon everyone and uh, thank you for making your way to beautiful Kew. Now... I never planned to research Far East prisoners of war, but like others in this field, I'm the child of a Far East prisoner of war. However, unlike so many FIPO, we tend to call them FIPO children, I had a very normal, healthy, happy upbringing, as did my three brothers. As small children, we took great delight in being able to count to 20 in Japanese. And my father told us, Funny stories about wearing high heels or learning to wear high-heeled shoes uh, in order to play in the chorus in the camp theatres. And practical stories about where to build latrines. High, windy and exposed is best in case you wanted to know. (laughs) He also spoke frequently and with affection about his unit, 27 line Section and with awe about his great friend Pat Stevenson, who later became my godfather, and who mended the big end bearings of a rice truck in the middle of the jungle, something you would normally require a whole workshop for. Uh, And I must have been a teenager before I discovered that my uncle, my godfather, was not a lorry driver, but a professor of mechanical engineering. (laughs) Barry also expressed admiration for the role that my mother played during the years that he was missing, and I'll be coming to that. On a more macabre note, he liked to boast of having assisted um, the surgeon, Jacob Markowitz, in one of the prison camps to carry out amputations. And when we, his children, turned 18, he encouraged each of us to give blood, as he had done so often in prison camps. And yet, in spite of this healthy outlook, right at the very end of his life, I discovered that the nightmare had never actually left him. And I will come back to this at the end. Today, I'm going to talk about how I came to research World War II, the World War II story of Barry, Phyllis, and the other men and women of 27 line section. What I found and why it seemed important to share it. And this isn't a story about the horrors of imprisonment. It's a story about the struggle to survive and about the amazing support these men and women gave each other. It's a story about box files and emails and coincidences. But there are very real humans behind this story. And I recently met some of the relations of the people in the book that I put together. In March, 2010, three months after Barry died, I opened a box file. It was full of documents, including three large Manila envelopes labelled before POW 1941, during POW 1942-5, to and after POW 1945. And it happened to be that the last envelope was the one that I opened first. And I pulled out this letter that you see here. And it's the first letter that Barry wrote as the free man. The letters in this envelope revealed that freedom for Barry and release from anxiety for Phyllis were not easy. These letters sent to each other after Barry was released but before the two met up again in Britain were anxious, tentative, occasionally even frantic. And I realized that this was part of the story that we never actually hear. I was also very moved as I handled the two sheaves of letters in the during POW envelope. And these are ones that have been through the jungles of Thailand. And they've survived endless marches and they're just about readable now. And this, the contents of this box was the first nudge that made me think that maybe I ought to be sharing this material. But there was something missing from the box. Barry used to talk about Phyllis as the mother of the regiment, and that's because of the role that she played during the war, keeping in touch with the 68 men's relations, their wives, their mothers, their fiancés, their sisters, brothers and grandparents. So I started looking for these letters. Phyllis had died in 1984, and we did fear that... Perhaps the letters had been destroyed. But there was a clue in the box. This letter from Harold Payne of the Far East Prisoners of War Association. So in great excitement, I wrote to the Imperial War Museum to ask where they've got the letters. And they hadn't got them. I then wrote to Harold, who unfortunately had just died, and his widow was not able to help me. But in the meantime, we'd published uh, an obituary in the Guardian Other Lives of Barry, and another researcher, Meg Parks, got in touch with me and said, Had I seen his Liberation Questionnaire? I hadn't. She went, came all the way here to Kew, she photocopied it and she posted it to me. Now these amazing documents, these liberation questionnaires are magic for a researcher. Most, though not all, surviving prisoners of war filled one of these in on their way home. There, in the soldier's own hand, is a record in 1945 of where they were during captivity. For me, this was an eye-opener. At this stage, I thought Burma Railway meant Burma. And as many of you will already know, Most, much of the railway was in Thailand, then often called still Siam and most of the British prisoners of war worked on the railway on the the Thailand side and not on the Burma side and it tends to be called now the Thailand Burma Railway. I also thought that all the men with Barry were together. Whereas in fact not only were they spread all over the railway, but actually all over the Japanese territories. With these wonderful, though often illegible records, you can trace an individual's life over their three and a half years as a prisoner. And this was nudge number two. I realized that in spite of my father's wonderful memoirs, which give details of camp life, I actually only had the haziest idea of those years when he was missing. At the same time, I felt extremely reluctant to face the reading that I knew would be involved in learning about what life had been like then. Then in August 2010, I got an email from the Imperial War Museum suggesting that I look in the Royal Signals Museum for Phyllis's missing documents. This museum is an active military establishment. It's in the wilds of Dorset. So getting into it requires a passport, advance notification, and a car. But it was in well, well worth it. There was an, I uncovered a treasure trove of 250 letters, as well as newspaper cuttings, contemporary notes uh, of my father's made immediately after the war, and all sorts of other things. The letters were mostly written by women, And they came from the tenements of Glasgow, the east end of London, the home counties. And there was also what has been referred to as a dossier. That was a sheet of information about almost all the 68 men in the unit. So here we have Billy Dawson's dossier page. And it shows that he's all a five foot tall, five foot four inches tall. And also beside it is a letter from his father much later in the war with a sad P.S. Sorry to tell you that since my son's been away, he's lost his mother. This and similar letters were nudge number three. People like Billy and his father deserve more than to be sitting in a dusty archive in a pretty inaccessible museum. And I felt I had no choice but to gather up the information that I'd been finding and try and put it together into some form of a book. So the book that I've put together is the story of Phyllis, Barry, and baby Robin, that's my brother, and the 68 men in the unit, and many of their wives, mothers, fiancés, grandparents, brothers and sisters. And it goes from the spring of 1941 to December 1945. Now, I've combined these documents with the memoirs that my father wrote in his 80s. And they tell the missing bit of the story in Thailand, mostly. What is deceptive, though, is I've tried to put these together, and I've used chronology to make the story. But letters written in, let's say, March 1943 could take two years to arrive, but it was the only method I could find to make a continuous story out of the material. Now, I foolishly imagined when I came here today that I'd be able to talk through the research and the four and a half years that these men were away, and of course, there isn't time. So this is very much a sketch with illustrations. And I'm sure some of you will already know an awful lot of the material I'm going to talk about whereas for others, there'll be lots of unanswered questions, and I should be so happy to try and answer some of them at the end. In early 1941, Barry, a lieutenant in the Royal Corps of Signals, and Phyllis, were both 25, and they and baby Robin were living near Salisbury. For the past few months, Barry had been overseeing the endless restoration of power lines and telephone lines during the Blitz on Portsmouth and Plymouth. He remembered the line men worked continuously during and after raids, eating and sleeping whenever they had a break, very reminiscent of conditions in Singapore a year later. Many of Barry's men had already, at this stage, been through Dunkirk and survived, and that was the group that he was working with there. Then in the spring of 1941, Barry was invited to take the captaincy of a new unit of about 70 men destined for Malaya, which is the country of his birth. He agreed, and 27-line section came into being, starting with those Dunkirk survivors that he already knew and had been working with, and they mostly came from London. The section, however, as so many things in wartime were, was a mixed bag, with a large number of men who were Scottish reservists. And we know about these men because of the dossier that Phyllis compiled. So we have men such as Jardine there, a postman with an easygoing nature, and Johnston, a steelwork labourer with a wife, Wilhelmina, and five children. And then there were four very close friends from Glossop, and these included George Hobson who worked in the anti-crease department of Tootle's Clothing Factory, and Jim Bridge, again all of five foot four, always biting his thumbnails. I love these details that the relatives felt were so important to tell about their men when they were trying to describe them. After a month working together, this new unit all went home on embarkation leave, during which at least two members of the unit got married, so here we have Postman Neil MacDonald and Bus Conductor John Lyons. What moves me about this group of men, thrown together just to make up the section, is that so few of them were career soldiers, and they were in no sense battle ready. And the Far East was still at peace, so they were doing a job of work to help with the war. And they set off in late July, and while waiting to board ship, they danced eight, ate some reels, Simultaneously, as Barry wrote in his memoirs, my last memory of England for four years was dancing on the platform at Liverpool Dock. They sailed into Singapore Harbour in the autumn of 1941. Barry's first letter home starts with a prescient Malay pantan, that's a form of traditional poetry. He's written in Malay, but I'll give you the translation. Whence are you and where away, grass is taller than the grain. Where will be the year and day that we two shall meet again? Later in the letter, he says, I had dinner with Joycey and Roger. These are his aunt and uncle. He's able to tell Phyllis exactly where he and the men are at that moment. Letters home then, as they still are now, were absolutely, desperately important for men serving overseas. In his memoirs, Barry wrote, Letters home went by sea for the equivalent of a few pence, but took five weeks, or even ten, for the letter plus the reply. There was a newly established airmail service, the Clipper Mail, and it would make the journey in four or five days, but letters were restricted to half an ounce and cost five shillings, worth about ten pounds or even more, uh, far beyond the reach of most soldiers. This caused considerable discontent in the section, and with the help of my wife, we devised a scheme to please everyone. What Barry did was sell whole, half, or even quarter sheets to the men for a few pence. And then he would collect all these sheets and put them into envelopes making them up to the required weight, post them on to Phyllis. Each sheet would have the address of the recipient in Britain. Phyllis would put them in new envelopes, readdress them, and post them on in Britain. But because of this scheme, she acquired the addresses of many of the relatives of the men in the unit. Now, every time Phyllis forwarded a letter from Malaya onto a relative, she included an explanatory letter of her own. And in one particular letter, she says, this morning I received eight clipper letters containing 48 letters of one sheet each for redistribution. That's a heck of a lot of addressing and posting. Back in Malaya, uh, after a short stint working in Singapore, 27 Line Section moved up into Malaya proper. So they moved up from Singapore here, and they were based in Kota Tinggi but they worked all the way around Johor and Pahang. One of Barry's letters says, I have a new detachment out now, further still, and I had a great round on Wednesday inspecting everybody, 260 miles. He describes a good road and then writes, Then it turned, turns to Red Earth Road, with jungle on both sides. It's very tall and hangs over our poor little poles, quite dwarfing them. The trees do almost meet, sometimes they fall down and bango our poor wires. He goes on to describe a new job, competing with the local post office and writes, The men love it, it feels like real work. And here are some of the men. They're permitted Aussie hats instead of topies and they're all as brown as Malay's, he writes. I love this photo. These are the men before it all went so badly wrong. They look cheerful and relaxed, and they're enjoying the work in Tingi. However, by late November 1941, news coming back to England begins to be troubling, and in the first of Phyllis's letters to survive, it's dated the 7th of December, she says, I'm trying not to worry about you. However, most of the letter, as are all her wartime letters, is taken up with a description of the astonishing progress of their baby Robin. He's now coming up to his first birthday, and she can't bear that Barry is missing all of this. And she's also aware, as all the other wives and mothers are, of the censor sitting on her shoulder as she writes. Then came a series of blows. On the 7th, 8th of December, Japanese bombed a Pacific naval base at Pearl Harbor without previously declaring war, and they also invaded Malaya. On the 8th of December, on a scrap of paper, Barry writes, darling wife, very darling wife, just now, war declared this AM. Bombs on Singapore, landing in Kelantan. He ends, All the love I have, my darling. On the 10th of December, the battleship HMS Prince of Wales and the cruiser HMS Repulse were steaming up the east coast of Malaya to help fend off the invasion. On the northeast coast, and they were wiped out by Japanese bombers. Things moved swiftly on. Barry and 27 Line Section continued to put up lines as they retreated down Malaya and then crossed the causeway into Singapore Island and then on into Singapore Town. The town was being bombed continuously, there were thousands of civilian casualties. Most of 27 line sections sustained minor injuries, but one man, Reg Holmes, died while restoring lines on an airfield. Singapore fell on the 15th of February 1942 to the Japanese. In the UK, nothing. A wall of silence came down. No one, least of all the war office, knew what had happened to the troops in and around Singapore. They didn't know who died, who'd been wounded in the fighting, who'd escaped, who'd been evacuated, or who had been made prisoner of war. For some families, that silence persisted from February 1942 until December 1945, when their man did or did not come home. Phyllis immediately sent out a circular letter to all the addresses that she had. And this was intended to raise spirits and to offer to coordinate any information that she might have. So here's Margaret Sampson writing back, mother of Signalman Peter Sampson. And she writes, you tell us to keep a high heart and hope for the best, and so I shall. Such news as did trickle back was random. The Japanese had no plans for their thousands of unexpected prisoners and certainly no time to waste collecting names, sending them or arranging for postal services for their humiliated enemies. Even the official missing letters from the Royal Signals Records Office took months or even years to arrive. Relatives needed to know the status of their men for purely practical reasons. If a man was a prisoner of war, allowances continued as before. If he was missing for a specified time and presumed dead, then allowances changed. But the government had no system in place for 40,000 men who go missing all at once, about whom no news is received back. Behind the scenes, the authorities were paddling furiously and trying to persuade the Japanese to arrange some kind of system of communication through a neutral country. And there's a wonderful, six-volume book by David Tett, which talks or researches all the way through that business of negotiation and arranging postal services. Meanwhile, on Singapore Island, the men were having their first taste of hard labour. He urged on by guards with fixed bayonets and bamboo switches, which they used continuously. The men were also struggling with food shortages and disease. And in May 1942, two men of 27 line section died of dysentery, and a third, Sergeant Gordon Hunt, of cerebral malaria. His dossier page says, very interested in photography, scouting and Sunday school work. One of his friends says, the finest fellow I ever met, coolest man in action I ever saw. Apart from these deaths, another eight men from the section were detached and sent to Java. And sadly, only two of those ever came home. Then in the autumn of 1942, the section, those that were left, went were taken to Singapore and travelled by rail in cattle trucks up the length of Malaya, just to give you some kind of focus. I mean, these were all, the, the middle of that was all Japanese territory by this time. They travelled up through Malaya, up the neck of land between Burma and Thailand, and fetched up here at Bampong. That was four days of travel in a scalding metal box, and this Bampong was at the time an extremely filthy, flooded staging camp. And from this moment on, the men became railway navvies, the Thailand-Burma Railway stretched from Nong taduk technically it's a bit confusing, up to the Three Pagodas Pass in Thailand and then on to, I don't know how you pronounce it, but tan bai in Burma. And it followed the course in Thailand of the River Kwai-Noi. It was built through virgin territory with hand tools and perhaps a few elephants here and there to do some of the heavy lifting, but they were quite rare. And it was built in less than 16 months, including the original planning, so it actually took a year to build. The men became hungrier and thinner as they moved higher upriver and beyond the reach of barges, and some sick were left at various camps on the way, others died. I had three main sources of information for their movements. at the National Archives, where, as I showed you right at the beginning, you find these amazing liberation questionnaires, and along with other contemporary documents, including Japanese ones. And this connects you directly, mostly with the surviving prisoners of war. These are, on the whole, accurate, um, but the names of the camps can be very confusing, as the men only knew them orally, so they could be written down any which way. This one here reveals that driver Douglas Henry Jones, who before the war had worked in the stockroom of a leather factory, was with Barry in Wampo South camp. At Wampo South, hundreds of men hand-drilled and then blasted rock, felled green teak, made hundreds of tons of concrete and built the Wampo fire duct. This amazing drawing by POW William Wilder in 1943 shows the caterpillar of men carrying one of these immensely heavy green teak beams. And you can see the guard at the rear beating one of the men. My second source was the Imperial War Museum. Here, the wonderful and sadly missed expert, Roderick Sutterby, who died two years ago now, unlocked the mysteries of Peter Dunstan's register of Far East POW deaths and graves. And this is essential for finding out what's happened to those who didn't survive. Rod also tracked down the diary of Barry's commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Selby Milner. Now, that's a page from the diary. It may not look like anything much, but it's researchers' gold dust. It's a primary contemporary source full of names and dates and incidents. I have to say this document is vanishing. It's a photocopy of a typescript, and if any researcher wants to do something great, go and transcribe it because it will, it will just disappear. My third major source, via email, was the Thailand-Burma Railway Center <laughs> <laughs> at Kanjanaburi. This has two unrivaled experts, Rod Beatty, who's walked every inch of the railway that you can still find and discovered lots of bits that have been lost, and who works tirelessly to preserve what is there, and Terry Mantan, who can give you accurate details from the tiniest description of any man who ever worked on the railway. Terry was invaluable to me, and he sorted out the dating in Barry's memoir, which was a little bit here and there. If 1943, when the men slogged on the railway, was for the prisoners of war probably the worst year, for most of the families in Britain, it continued as a nightmare of waiting. Phyllis was one of the lucky ones, Only eight months after Barry went missing, that's in December, she was overjoyed to get the news that he was officially a prisoner of war. For relatives, this was good news. She knows he's not missing, he's not dead, and he should survive. She shared this news with all the other relatives in a circular letter and received many generous replies. I think many of them also hoped that all the men would be together with Barry. However, most relatives of ordinary soldiers started 1943 with no information at all. They didn't even know if their men were prisoners of war. So it's in March '43 that Mrs. Tomkinson writes, I'm sure you will be as cheerful and thankful as we are to hear the joyful news of our dear David being a prisoner in Borneo. The dear girls had a terrible job to keep back the tears of joy from overflowing not surprising, it's a year of waiting. Mm. David, sadly her David, is in Borneo. It's a very bad place to have ended up. And one of the saddest things about reading such letters today is knowing that the son or husband was not going to survive. Mrs Tomkinson, like so many others, was writing to a ghost. In a later letter she wrote, we keep hoping and praying waiting and watching for any small bit of news we can get about our loved one. We keep writing every two weeks, as allowed, and we are so anxious to know that our dear one is receiving any of our letters. And then the line that tells you so much about these relatives. We feel sure he would be much happier if he knows that we are quite safe and well. He was such a loving boy, and so thoughtful to his mom and dad. By the early summer of 1943, Barry and the remnants of the unit were marching upriver in continuous rain at this stage, and well beyond the reach of barges. They were going to construct a new camp at somewhere called, there we are, 211. And they would marched pretty well continuously from Wangpo or Wangfo. The speedo, that's the panic push to finish the railway had started. Rations were down by this time to one bowl of rice a day. The men got up in the dark and came home in the dark. They worked very, very long days. Disease was rampant. There was nobody free of it, really. And by this time, cholera had also appeared. We were talking about the spring of 43. This was very, very nearly the end for Barry. He became too sick to eat, and he was sent downstream with a whole load of other useless men. They happened to leave on a rare rest day and two of his men carried him on their backs for seven kilometres that was needed to get to the river where the barges were. One of them was driver Gibby Douglas, we don't know the name of the other one. He reached the next camp, which was Tarkanum, weighing five stone, 13 pounds and many of the men with him were already dead. There was a doctor there, Dr Robert Hardy, who's published his secret diary um, in the 70s, I think, but it's a contemporary diary. He records, a lot of very sick men are coming down from Camp 211 in shocking condition. Gaunt spectres of men riddled with malaria and food deficiencies. One can do very little for these people. He did enough to keep Barry alive and able to board the barge down to the hospital camp, which was one of the big, base hospital camps at Chungkai. In Britain, from mid-1943 onwards, some field cards started to arrive from the men. Wife of driver Laurie Witten is one of the lucky ones, and she writes simply to say, it was a great relief after two and a half years of waiting. It's very difficult for us to conceive what two and a half years of waiting to hear from somebody is, will actually feel like. Phyllis has still had no word. But one day in January, an undated card arrives and gets forwarded by mistake to San Francisco, where Barry's parents are broadcasting in Malay for the BBC. Luckily, they're able to cable, and Phyllis hears very soon. Unfortunately, in spite of the great joy of hearing that Barry, at least when he wrote the card undated, was alive. It was, I think, the day after she heard was the day that Anthony Eden stood up in Parliament to tell the country the appalling treatment of prisoners of war at Japanese hands and the certainty that there were many, many dead. Back in Thailand, Barry survived the journey and grew stronger, and in October 1943, When the railway was completed, thousands, well, hundreds, I'm not sure of my figures here, of men, poured down into the big base camps. Um, They were sick and they were dying. And Barry worked in the vast, stinking hospital huts, helping dysentery patients get to the latrines, or in the Elsa wards, scraping out the great wounds from which so many of them suffered. But that wasn't all that he was doing. His main skill was making and mending. He made crutches, shorts, shoes, musical instruments, he mended books, and here we have his complete works of Racine still here, having been right the way through the war and got, got rebound in Chungkai. Still completely readable. He also eventually had his talent as a chorus girl discovered and he remembers doing a song and dance routine with the leading lady to a tune called The Yam. All of this was considered useful work, and he avoided selection for the upriver repair parties, in which he was very lucky. However, the Japanese finding that they had so many spare, and some of them now relatively fit men in these big base camps, began sending more and more men overseas to their other territories, uh, particularly Japan, these unlucky men travelled in what are now known as hell ships, in the holds of these big ships in unbearably grim conditions. About 12 or 27 line section were in the Hōfuku Maru, and this was bombed by the Allies on the 21st of September 1944 and sunk. Many hundreds of men drowned, but some were rescued a lot of them Australian, but about 60 British men were rescued. I'm afraid six of those 12 from 27 Line Section lost their lives. But it was this, the rescue of these 60 Britons that inspired Phyllis to create her dossier. And to do this, she wrote to all the families that she knew of, asking about the men's civilian jobs, their nicknames, anything outstanding in their appearance just anything that might help another prisoner who'd seen them for only a few moments to remember having seen them. And it's these, the letters that then poured in from the families that tell us most about the men that are now just disappeared. For instance, here is one woman, Alice Lane, and she's telling us about her grandson that she brought up when both his parents died. And then her husband died, and so she had to put him and his brother in the National Children's Home. Mm-hmm. Yet she has time to sympathize with the families of the men lost on the hell ship and says, I sometimes wonder why God lets such things happen. Although we have been bombed out of our home, that's nothing to what they've been going Thanks, through. Yeah. And then there's Mrs. Handon and I don't know whether to laugh or cry when I read this. Dear Madam, I'm writing on behalf of my sister, Mrs. Bamford, as her husband is no scholar, and I have to do all the writing for them. He had no nickname, just Willie. He did not speak very clear the last time we saw him, but he had false teeth before he went overseas, but we did not have the pleasure of seeing him with them in them before he went away. Willie had been dead for over a year when she wrote this, probably of cholera. Another member of the unit said of him, grand kid, 100% well-liked by everybody. I have to share with you one more endearing example with a happier ending. Mrs. Farrell, mother of the, the asthmatic signalman, Harry Farrell, wrote, although there was nothing outstanding in his appearance, The following might be of help. Before he went overseas, he had a tattoo done on his right forearm. It began at the wrist and went almost to the elbow. And it was the figure of a Highlander in full national costume. It was coloured and very unusual, and would have been the first thing to catch the eye. Harry, I'm glad to say, survives the war. In 1945, the men and officers were separated. And life became very unpleasant for Barry, but he was fit and strong. And then on 6th and 8th of August, the US dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and on the 15th, Japan capitulated. By late August, the news had reached most of the scattered prisoner of war camps. Barry's rescuer was a single, smart, heavily armed American paratrooper looking something like this. This is the modern version. But he particularly remembers polished boots and things like that. As Barry wrote, an astonishing spectacle to a bunch of very thin men in Jap happies or tattered shorts. From September to December 1945, Far East prisoners of war were gathered up and spread right round the globe to get back to Britain. And they could go via India, via Australia. Many of them went across America and up across Canada, so you had no idea how your man was going to get home. In Britain, relatives waited anxiously for the cable from their man. And of course, many of them waited in vain. And there are heartbreaking letters in the archives asking Phyllis and Barry for help. So Mrs Wakelin, mother of Ginger Signalman Ginger Wakelin, has heard nothing by late November, and they're sitting there, since August, waiting for this cable. Her son had died in May 1945, and the news took a long time to get through. Barry and Phyllis write to comfort her. They write to every bereaved relative of the men in the unit. But there are also heartwarming letters Mm. from the men who returned, like Gibby Douglas, who carried Barry on his back, way back on the railway. He writes, wholesome thank you to Phyllis for keeping in touch with his wife, and then drops back into his more familiar Scots to say the old toast, which we usually reserve for those in the top flight. Now, I can't do the Scots, so you just have to read it. That's why I was looking to see if it was (laughs) readable from here. Many of the men who return write to exchange information about those who came home. They've all lost friends. As Jack Taylor notes, poor old 27 got its share. Of the 69 men who reached Malaya in 1941, 28 died and 41 came home. I think that's about average. The men are all so pleased that Barry survived and so grateful to Phyllis for keeping in touch with their fiancés, mothers, wives, and so on, and so concerned for each other but you feel that many of them will succeed in putting their lives back together? And from the earlier letters, you can also tell that the mothers and wives are aware of the trauma that they've been through and prepared to look after their men. Sadly, this was not true for everyone. Other returning prisoners of war came back to uncomprehending families, (coughs) hostile children, GPs who had no idea about tropical diseases, And they also were asked not to talk about their experiences. They suffered high levels of mental illness, and I'm afraid suicide rates were greater in this group of prisoners of war than in others. Sadly, this has passed on to another generation, and there are quite a few of you here in that generation. The children of many Far East prisoners of war are still suffering, It's a truism, but war just doesn't end with the declaration of peace. The research never ends either. I found new information in the archives here in Kew since the book came out. It's a sort of giant jigsaw puzzle. You get lots of pieces and you just keep putting them in and then moving them around when you find they're in the wrong place. And you just have to keep on searching. I'm haunted by the threads. I failed to follow up. The books I haven't yet read, they're on my shelves, I just haven't got there. And the archives and museums I haven't yet visited. So I guess I'm going to be doing this for a little while longer. I said at the beginning that I discovered at the end of Barry's life that the nightmare had never left him. He knew he was dying. We talked easily about this. I came to his room very early one morning and found him clutching the bedclothes to him his chest. And he said, they're out there. It's going to start in a minute. The shouting, the clanging. I sat on his bed and he didn't immediately recognise me. So I talked to him and he agreed that I was his daughter and that I had three brothers. It took three quarters of an hour for me to convince him that I was the reality and the prison camp was the hallucination. He was so afraid of being wrong. He knew he was very ill and asked if he would die and I agreed that he would. But he said, do you mean I've had a life? And I said, "Yes. you're 94. Phyllis died many years ago, but you have 11 grandchildren and five great-grandchildren, at last, With euphoria filling his voice, he said, I'll settle for that. Thank you very much. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.